0: But our passage this morning, it's worth saying, is not addressed to them. It's actually addressed to us. It's actually addressed to people who are still going. You see, the author to the book of Hebrews, as we've been seeing all the way through, is writing to people who attempted. tempted. They were struggling to fall away, uh, struggling not to fall away. They were coming under huge pressure to ditch Jesus and go back to their old way of life in Judaism. And Paul writes this whole letter to keep them going, to convince them to keep going with Jesus, to keep faithing, loving and hoping, as we saw last week in the first part of the passage that was read. But this morning we meet the difficult part of that passage, the second part, and it's supposed to be a warning to them, a wake-up call to them. It's to tell them not to throw the towel in, not to give in on Christ, not to give up their hope. And really, in our passage, there are two ways that the author tries to convince them to stick with Jesus. There's like a stick and a carrot, uh, if you like, as we go through this morning. There's a hard thing and then a nice thing. Well, we start off with the stick, some home truths. Let me read you verses 26 uh, to 31 again. Four, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let me put this as clearly as I can, because I think there was some confusion last time I preached a similar passage earlier on in Hebrews. What it's saying here is that if you finally, definitively, turn your back on Christ, you will not make it to glory. If you give up on Christ never to return, the passage is saying that you will be damned. That's what the author is explaining. I've said clearly what it is saying. Let me state clearly what it's not saying. It's not saying if you sin after becoming a Christian, you are damned. It is saying if we reject Jesus after having heard the gospel, then there is no other way to be right with God. Christ is the only way to be right with God. So if you ditch him, you ditch any hope of eternal salvation. If you reject Christ, then there is no other sacrifice for sins. Why make this point to the people there? Well, they might have been tempted to think that there was another route. After all, they used to offer sacrifices, didn't they? Animal sacrifices at the temple. Well, maybe we could just go back to that. You know, we will just... Go back to offering different sacrifices. No, says the author, bearing in mind all that we've seen about the blood of bulls and goats that can never take away sin. Only the blood of Christ can make you right with God. So if you reject Jesus, then no sacrifice for sin remains. So if that's what he's talking about, then why does he say going on sinning deliberately? Why does he explain it that way as rejecting Christ? Let me just tease out a few things from that statement. So you see it there in uh, verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately. It's worth noting that that's a state, not an action. It doesn't say if we sin deliberately, there remains no sacrifice for sin. It says if we go on sinning deliberately. It's not one mark and you're out. And it is go on sinning deliberately. It's not a certain number of sins, if you like, that you know, we, we can add up to until we tip the balance. You know, you relied five lies, and then that's it, you're out. And it's not a severity scale, you know, sort of breaking the 10th commandment is okay. Covetousness doesn't really count here. But breaking the 7th commandment, do not steal, or the 6th commandment, do not kill, well, that's enough to damn you. What it's talking about here is a state that we put ourselves in. A state of spurning Christ, giving up on the faith. And if we carry on in that state, then we will be damned. So, if it doesn't mean that it's uh, about just sinning in general, can we carry on in sin? That sounds a bit like Romans, doesn't it? By no means. We do have to ask that question, though. If we are in a state of constant, persistent sin, without true repentance... Haven't we given up on the faith already? Keeping the name Christian and turning up to church, if you're living in a persistent, immoral lifestyle, well, isn't that just turning away from Christ in all but name? That person, too, won't make it to glory, but it's not really the issue that's addressed here. Here, it's actually turning your back on Jesus openly. But that subject is addressed elsewhere. So in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 5, it says... But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, it goes on. Having an appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Paul elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 9 to 11 says this. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world, but I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reveler, or sorry, reviler, uh, drunkard, or swindler. Do not even eat with such a one. So that's dealing more with the idea of people who are calling themselves brothers, but don't make it to glory. Um, because actually, in the next chapter, he goes on to write this, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. It's on the back of your notice sheets. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor rev- revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Do you notice he's picking up on the same language as just before? Before. No, naming Christ's name does not give you a place in heaven. A change in our life will accompany our profession of faith. If it doesn't, then our profession of faith is meaningless. So James says, doesn't he, in James 2.17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But that's not the point that our author is making in Hebrews. His point is more that faith without perseverance is dead. We're saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. It comes with works. We're used to that, aren't we? But it also comes with perseverance. So we're used to understanding no works, no saving faith. But it's also true, no perseverance, no saving faith. Verse 36, you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And I've put it on, in the NIV on the back. You need to persevere. So that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what is promised. So it's talking about those who, who, in verse 39, shrink back. Those who abandon Christ. Those who turn away, never to be brought back to repentance. And this explains why he puts it in such stark terms in verse 29. Uh, do you see that there in twenty-nine? How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? He's saying that to turn your back on Christ, well, is to trample underfoot the Son of God. It alludes to what you do with rubbish when you chuck it out, treating Jesus like the stuff that you tread on in the streets. It's to profane the blood of the covenant. Literally, to treat the blood of Christ as something common, in the sense of unclean, filthy. To treat the precious blood of Jesus that forgives our sin, that sacred blood of Jesus that pays our price, as nothing but a stain on the ground. To treat the sacrificial, heaven-purchasing death of Jesus as nothing special. Just the death of another man. He's saying this is effectively what you do if you give up on Jesus. His death just becomes another death. Nothing special, nothing supernatural. Just another common guarded death. The language he uses there harks back to the blood of the old covenant. The blood that was sprinkled on them. The blood of the sacrifices that was made to atone for their sin. To treat that blood as common was to say that they've been sprinkled in just blood. The same sort of blood you find at a butcher's. There was no sacrifice, there was no covenant, it's just blood. And that's what these people are saying about Jesus' blood by turning their back on him. And it's also to outrage the spirit of grace, a reference to the Holy Spirit who gives us grace. To definitively reject Jesus is to throw God's grace back in his face. To not accept the gift that he has graciously given, even at the cost of his own blood. This is to outrage the spirit of grace. And it's similar language, isn't it, to blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which Jesus speaks of as the unpardonable sin. So it goes back to really what we started with. If we reject Jesus, then there is no hope of forgiveness, no hope of pardon, because he's the only means of forgiveness and pardon. And the author's point is that we cannot do this. We cannot trample the Son of God underfoot. We cannot profane the blood of the covenant. We cannot outrage the spirit of grace and expect to get away with it. There will be consequences. What are those consequences? Well, we see them there in verse 28. Anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one and he goes on to use those phrases that we've just talked about. Yes, there's a question. If the punishment was severe for setting aside the old covenant, how much greater do you think the punishment will be for those who do the things that we've just said? If ditching Moses merited death, what do you think ditching the very Son of God merits? Well, he tells us there in verse 27. A fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Fearful expectation of judgment. Not that they will be afraid of the judgment, but the judgment that will come on them is worthy of fearful expectation. It's so scary, this judgment, that we should wait in fear for it. It's a bit like going to the dentist. You can apologize to Pam afterwards. Uh, But I hate going to the dentist. I'm really sorry. I do. And half of what I hate is the anticipation in the waiting room. You know, before you go in? The anticipation of the horror that's to come, if you like. (laughs) Normally it's with me. But do you see that the horror is so great for me that even waiting contains an element of horror. And so too should the horror to befall the one who turns away. It doesn't mean that they feel it. It doesn't mean they go around feeling scared, but they should do. So awful is what is to come, and they would do if they realised what was ahead. What is ahead? Well, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. It's saying here, by turning their back on God, they've made God their enemy. What awaits for them is what awaits the enemies of God. A Fury of fire, a fiery fury that will consume them. All the way through Hebrews, he's sort of been pointing us back to that wilderness generation that got out of Egypt but never made it to the promised land. And the language that's used here is the language that's used of Korah's rebellion. There was a group of people who decided with his companions that they would not have Moses as their leader. They denied there was anything special about Moses, and they thought that the people could just lead themselves. Well, God's answer to that is found in Numbers 16.35. Again, it's on the back of your notice sheet. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed 250 men offering the incense. That's the men who were following Korah. They rejected Moses and in so doing, they set themselves up against God. They made themselves God's enemies and so were consumed. And his point is this, if that was the penalty for those who rejected Moses, a servant in God's house, how much greater punishment for those who have rejected Jesus, a son over God's house. So what it speaks of here are eternal flames of everlasting fury. The lot of those who finally reject Jesus is hell. Why? Because if we have made ourselves God's enemies, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The quotes there that are are listed after um, uh, the passage, so verse 30, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and the Lord will judge his people. They're quotes from Deuteronomy 32, again, that wilderness generation. They speak of Israelites who are unmindful of the rock that bore them. And forgot the God who gave them birth. So even though they've been part of the community that have been rescued from Egypt, they've surprisingly turned their back on God. Which if you think about it, is surprisingly similar to the situation we have here. And the Lord says, vengeance is mine for those people. They will not get away with it. The Lord will judge his people. Now really, in the original, that's the Lord will judge for his people, actually, So it's saying that the Lord will judge for his people and against you who've turned away. Why is he telling them all this? Does he think they're going to fall away? Is, Is that what he's doing? Sort of saying, I told you so? Well, no. Have a look at verse 39, right at the end of our passage. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He's actually saying, I don't actually think you're going to fall away. He's told them something similar in chapter 6, Hebrews 6 verse 9, after the last warning passage that we looked at some time ago. He said, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Actually, the author of Hebrews is confident that they'll make it through this tough time that they're having with their faith intact. So why is he telling them all this? Well, the answer is that he's telling them this to help them get through with their faith intact. You see, the goal of this section of the letter is not to terrify them. He actually wants to help them. He doesn't really address the question of can we lose our salvation or or not. His point is more don't. Don't do it. Don't fall away. Don't give in. Don't. It's Jesus. So this passage sort of acts a bit like the ghost of Christmas Yet To Come, you know, from uh, Lewis's Christmas Carol. Look at the terrifying future that might be if you turn your back on Jesus. Look at what could happen. But in showing them this, his goal is not that they be permanently terrified. His goal is that they—that might not be their future. He's actually saying, "I don't want you to go this way." His goal is to warn them away from this future. This terrifying warning is there to stop this ever happening, and this is here to give them that extra help not to give in. It's a bit like when a child runs into a road. You've seen a parent when a child's just sort of not looked and run into the road, and the parent sort of grabs them and shakes them and shouts at them, you could have been hit by a car and died. The goal of the parent is not that the child be traumatized every time they see a road. The goal is that their child will live, and that they'll go on living, that they'll never run into the road without looking again. So too here. The passage is scary. scary. But the goal is not fear, it's life. The goal is that we read this and come back from the precipice because we have a clearer picture of what happens if we go over. Don't give in. That's what the author is telling us. And some of us might need to hear that warning this morning. We might be struggling. We might be tempted to give in. Now, don't get me wrong. I do believe uh, what we sing when we sing in Christ alone. You know, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. I believe it because Jesus said, speaking of his sheep in John ten twenty eight, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I do believe that. But I also believe that those who turn back never to return are lost. I believe the parable of the sower that Jesus taught. That some who seem to begin with enthusiasm don't make it to the harvest. So how can the author of Hebrews be so sure that they will get through this tough time and make it to the end? Well, the answer is our second section, the carrot, our suffering track record, verses 32 to 39. Let me read them to us. But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. What he does here is point them back to the evidence of their own saving faith. The Hebrews, it seems, had had a hard time. You read there, don't you, that they'd been publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, probably or possibly losing their jobs or being ridiculed in the streets or both. They'd had their property confiscated or stolen with the authorities turning a blind eye. And yet they'd shown compassion to those in prison, probably because either they, they had themselves or thought they would end up there. And if you think about it, going to see people in prison in those days would have been quite a dangerous thing to do. Actually, it would be really easy to spot the Christians, wouldn't it, taking provisions for their friends in prison. And remember, these were times when you didn't get meals in prison. You depended on the compassion of others who needed people to come and help you. He's saying, look, you did that. They had partnered with those who had faced all these hard things, standing alongside them, supporting them through these trials. And how had they faced it all? Have a look at the second part of verse 34. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. They'd done it joyfully. Partnering one another. Having their stuff taken. They'd done it joyfully. They got a hope that sustained them through this. They knew they had better possessions waiting for them in glory. Solid joys and lasting treasure they were able to joyfully accept losing everything because they knew they had something better coming. And that joy in the face of adversity was evidence to the author that their faith was genuine, that it was a real saving faith. He's asking them to think back to that time and recall it, to look at the evidence that was so obvious to everyone that a real and lasting change had taken place in their hearts. The trials that they had faced had actually revealed the genuineness of their faith. And if you think about it, trials have this effect on people, don't they? Think back again to the parable of the sower. The same blazing sun that causes the seed sown on rocky ground to wither and die causes the one on the good soil to flourish. The same sun. Or if botany's not your thing, how about cookery? The same oven that bakes a cake melts an ice cream, doesn't it? You see, difficult trials are like heat. They reveal what we truly are. And the author says, look, look at what you've already been through and come out with your faith intact. Recall how you went through it. Could you have done that without Jesus with you? So don't throw it away now when you've come so far with him. Don't ditch the confidence that you once had. God sees what you're going through and there's a great reward ahead. If you'll just make it to the finish line. And then he quotes from the Greek texts of Isaiah and Habakkuk. Both passages speak of the shortness in time until the end. And the necessity of keeping going in the meanwhile. You're almost there, he's saying. I'm almost there, God is saying in those passages. The Habakkuk's passage speaks of the danger of giving up during waiting. Shrinking back. Rather than trusting that coming one is coming, their faith and their hope must sustain them as they wait. They must keep going. But crucially, Hebrews has also given us something else to keep them going, something that we alluded to last week, which brings us nicely to our last point how to keep going one another. Have a look back at verse 25, just before our passage that we've been looking at uh, this morning. Sorry, back to verse 24, actually. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Why am I pointing us back to verse 25? Well, because we've missed a little word uh, in verse 26. That was there right at the beginning. It says, for, because, Actually, all that we've been reading this morning has been encouragement not to fall away, yes, but at the same time, it's also encouragement not to give up meeting together. Why? Well, because one another is the gift that God has given us to keep going. Meeting together is supposed to help stop our hearts getting hardened by sin. Meeting together is supposed to help us make it to the promised land. You can see it there in verse 33, can't you, in the way that they partnered with one another who were exposed to reproach and affliction. In verse twenty—sorry, uh, 34, they had compassion on brothers and sisters in prison, even risking their own freedom, possibly, to do so. This partnership that they've got together as a church, it makes perseverance more possible. It doesn't guarantee it, but it does help it. One of the earliest steps nearly always in falling away is stopping meeting regularly with other believers. And we all know Christians who've done that, don't we? Who gradually sort of slip off the radar. Don't do it, says the author, for all the reasons that I've just written to you. Do not neglect meeting together, says God, through the author of Hebrews, not because the congregation wants an ego boost with a full room, not because there's not enough people on the setup roster. He's saying don't give up meeting together because in the end of that process that you're going through will likely land you in hell. Now, going to church is not essential to your salvation, not at all. I don't want to add this as an extra work that we must achieve. But it is God's chosen instrument to help us in our own perseverance. And if we take the warnings of this passage seriously, then we'll take our commitments to one another seriously. We'll take church seriously. We'll take stirring one another up to love and good works seriously. Not so we can all look good and pious, but so that we can actually make it to the end. Church does not earn you brownie points with God but it should help you keep going. Now, that does depend what church is like, though. If we treat church like some people treat my gym, we're going to be in trouble, let me tell you. Because there are some people who go to my gym, and it just seems they just go to show off. You know, They've already got the body and everything, and they just go uh, to look good. But church is not a place to go and strut your spiritual stuff. That will do us no good. We'll be proud when we're doing well, and we'll feel crushed when we're not. We need to treat church as a place where it's okay to not be okay, okay? Church should be there to strengthen the weak, to bolster the bashful, to help us partner with one another in this hard and precarious pilgrimage that we call the Christian life. How can we make church more like that, a place where it's okay to not be okay? Well, I've left that as our over coffee question that we can chat about uh, afterwards. But church is a huge part of God's plan for perseverance here in the present. That's actually what all those people at the beginning ditched that I mentioned, Do you remember? It wasn't their whole story by any means, but it was a step along the road to their apostasy. So if you remember, I sort of dropped in that Peter was a baker at the beginning. Well, this was the mid-90s. Sunday opening started And, well, it started being, well, I won't work any of them, even though they're more money. And then it became, well, I'll only do a few of them. And then it became every Sunday. I only see Peter now at Christmas times when he comes with his parents and brother to church. Sarah Jane, I said, was an office worker in her mid-twenties. She got a non-Christian boyfriend and said, oh, no, it won't take me away from Christ. She was challenged about it at church, her response was to stop going to church. And now she's married to the guy, that she no longer meets with the bride of Christ. Catherine, who, having done so well all the way through school, went to university. She planned to sort out a church when she got there. She was busy and freshers week, so she didn't quite get round to it. The week after, well, she'd been out the night before and she couldn't quite wake up in time in the morning. And the weeks went by and she just never found a church. And in fact, she never went back, even when she came home. If we give up meeting together, we're putting ourselves in real danger. That's why the author is so insistent that we don't do it. We need one another. And if we bear in mind that church uh, should not be a place to, to show off, but actually to help one another. God has made us interdependent for our own perseverance. So let's not neglect what God has given us to persevere this morning. Let's not be those shrink back. Because God has given us the carrot and the stick and one another. So that we might not be those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. Well, let's pray that God would do that in our lives. Let's pray. Father God, as we look at this passage this morning, we know it's, it's not a nice passage in the normal sense of the word. Father, it's scary in places. But Father, pray that we wouldn't be scared into non-action, Father, but we would be um, taking the warning that is given here. Father, help us to be those who have faith and preserve our souls. Father, help us not to give up meeting together. Father, help us to encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. And so, Father, give us the grace that we need. Help us to help one another. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.